The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. My uh, theme text for our time together is Jeremiah 8.22. It was in your program. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? God is concerned with uh, health. Jesus was the great physician. One of the authors of the Gospels was a physician. And part of the purpose of God's redemptive activity in history is healing. But few things are more humbling for us as uh, human beings than the reminder of our mortality when uh, epidemics of disease uh, strike the human community. It's very humbling for human pride, especially the pride of modern medicine. Uh, But... When I was growing up in school, we um, used to sing a song about the Black Death, the most uh, devastating plague ever to strike Europe. It's thought that in the uh, middle of the 14th century there, 20 million people were killed in three years. They died in three years. One quarter of Europe's entire population was wiped out in a plague. Most scholars believe that the Black Death is what we call the bubonic plague. As you all know, I'm not a doctor, but um, I do have a library card. And uh, (laughs) uh, a flea-borne bacteria was passed to humans by the bite of an infected flea. And the effects of this on on the body were quite uh, terrifying to review. This is what I read. After a six-day incubation period, chest pain, coughing, and breathing problems are attended by the vomiting of blood, fever, and dark skin blotches caused by internal bleeding, by which it acquired the name Black Death, as well as painful swellings in the lymph nodes in various parts of the body. Delirium, coma, and death usually followed quickly. It was a terrifying experience for any community to endure. And such threats, we're told, are just as real today as they ever were. The uh, medical self-confidence of the 20th century has been shaken more than once. Some of you will recall, actually hopefully not uh, literally recall, but will know of the 1918-1919 virulent influenza epidemic, which again swept across the world, killing 25 million people in the early part of the 20th century. Today, there are other deadly viruses still that threaten. The Marburg virus, Ebola fever, just to name two. And these pathogens remain one of the most significant threats to human health and well-being. There are many experts who say that it's not a question of if, but when another pandemic of this sort 
will strike. And uh, despite the wonder drugs of post-World War II, there are many things which still humble us and render us powerless or ineffective, at least, against many diseases and illnesses from cancer to diabetes to CJD to Alzheimer's, heart disease, and a host of other conditions. We have certainly made dramatic strides in our diagnostic abilities and our technical headway, but we are still perpetually bowed before disease and death. And sometimes the best place to catch a virus is in a hospital these days. Um, There are reasons for that, as you know. Now, none of this, though, should surprise any Christian that disease and decay are part of the human condition because the Bible makes it abundantly clear that the whole human person has been affected by sin, both body and soul. And that was at the time of the fall, the whole creation, and the fall is a pivotal Christian doctrine. I don't know how we begin even to understand the issue of death, disease, and suffering without the biblical doctrine of the fall. The whole creation was cursed and subject to futility, the Bible tells us, and a bondage to corruption. And the consequence of this was sin, death, or the consequence of sin was death and disease and suffering entering into God's creation. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 3, of course, verses 4 through 24. We read about it, Paul tells us, in 1 Corinthians 15. But I want to turn your attention to Romans chapter 8, where Paul specifically deals with this. Romans chapter 8, and beginning at verse 19, he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. So Paul speaks very specifically here that we have all been affected, the whole creation has been affected by sin. The uh, noted geneticist, Dr. John Sanford, a former evolutionist and professor at Cornell University in his landmark book, Genetic Entropy and the Mystery of the Genome, he shows that uh, mutations have put all forms of multicellular life on a fast track to extinction. What he argues there is that human beings have been accumulating these genetic copying mistakes and this puts our DNA, our whole race, close to what he calls error catastrophe. The Bible says we are dust and we are returning to the dust. Yet according to the scripture, at the same time, our experience of sickness and disease and suffering and death is an aberration. 
despite the normality of our endurance of these things in our lives, they somehow nonetheless leave us with a sense that things are not supposed to be this way. That disease and death are an imposition into God's created order, that they are, they are a foreign body, they are an alien pathogen that didn't originally belong in God's world. Hence our very desire to heal, to restore. Where does that desire come from? If death, disease, decay, and all those things were just uh, the engine of life, leading us towards some uh, uh, age of Aquarius, then we wouldn't be concerned with We wouldn't be concerned to heal and preserve people's lives. Uh, My wife Jenny and I have had some very real encounter with the problem of disease as a seemingly a foreign body in life when Jenny was diagnosed with cancer last year. And uh, she's just undergone 10 months of the best that modern medicine claims to be able to offer. Uh, by way of chemotherapy, radiation therapy, surgery, uh, hormone treatments, and so on and so forth. And, uh, well, some of those things uh, made it difficult to feel that they were medicine. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, they are aimed at least, they're targeted at least, at preserving life. Nonetheless, it still, still feels as though disease is an alien and an invading force into life that doesn't originally belong there. Now, in the biblical worldview, it's important that we understand that the diseased character of the world speaks directly to God's plan of salvation and redemption and restoration in the covenant. And therefore, it speaks specifically to the Christian's calling in the world. Jesus in the, in the Bible, Paul especially, deals with this, tells us that uh, we're told that Christ is the second Adam. Adam is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke, but Jesus is called the second Adam in that he has come to do something to undo the work of the first so that the Bible speaks not simply of the salvation of souls but of the whole person and of the entire creation. We just read it in Romans 8, we read it also in Colossians 1, in 2 Corinthians 5, in Ephesians 1. Peter says, the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 13, he says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And Jesus even taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, where? On earth, as it is in heaven. So the Christian life is much more about getting heaven into earth than it is about getting us into heaven. The heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God, comes down out of heaven. It's a new heavens and a new earth. It's the restoration of all things in Jesus Christ. In Mark's gospel, we read the account of the woman who has been suffering with hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse, we read in Mark chapter 5. She hears about Jesus, though, and when she hears about the Lord Jesus, she presses through the crowd. She says, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. 
And she was right. The bleeding stopped the instant she touched his cloak, and she was delivered from all of her suffering. And Jesus knew that power had gone out from him, and he said, who touched me? And he says, woman, your faith has made you well. Now, uh, Yesterday, we were hearing in the uh, second session about the fact that Jesus healed as an aspect of his kingdom ministry, and uh, we heard something very, very important there about the fact that our culture is obsessed with biological wellness rather than total wholeness. But the healing of the sick was a manifestation, as we heard yesterday, a sign of the kingdom of God. Now, I understand that Jesus did have and does have specific purposes in many of the healings, that he performs in the New Testament. But you know, sometimes I think Jesus just healed because he had compassion upon people. This woman with the issue of blood, it seems that Jesus, until she touched him and she was healed, didn't know that she was there. But then he knew power had gone out from him. He is the healer. And in his healings, they were signposts to the power of God. Yes, they were signposts to the work of God in history. But they were also directing us toward and pointing toward the new creation. The direction in which history is moving is the direction of total restoration. Forgiveness of sin, you see, and healing of the body are very closely associated in the Bible. Uh, Psalm 103, 2 Chronicles 7. I can't read you all of these. I'd like to, but we don't have the time. You can write them down. 2 Chronicles 7, 14. In Luke 5 and in Matthew 9, uh, Jesus very specifically says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or take up your mat and walk. Now, Jesus is not here making a direct correlation with, you did this sin, therefore you've got this disease. The disciples asked that question with the blind man, you recall. Was it his parents or this man who sinned that he should be this way? And Jesus says, neither of the above. But the, power, but the power of God might be manifest in this man. So it's the fallen character of the world that means there is uh, disease. It is the problem of sin, and there is a causal, this is very important for the gospel, there is a causal relationship between sin and death, between sin and disease. In James chapter 5, this point is made explicit. If you have your Bible with you, It's always good as a physician to have a Bible as well as the uh, uh, pharmaceutical handbook for uh, signing prescriptions. James chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Listen to what James says. Is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick And the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And so the Bible everywhere links the problem of sin in the created order and healing and restoration. The outworking in the gospel of the gospel in history as time moves towards the restoration of all things in Jesus Christ is healing and wholeness for the whole man. So Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 24, by his wounds you have been 
healed. And Jesus sends out his disciples to heal the sick. History does not end at the cross. Uh, It ends in the new creation. History moves through the cross, through the resurrection, to the ascension, and on into the recreation of all things. And so we are new creations today in Jesus Christ. The resurrection of the body, the Bible argues that the resurrection of the body is the final, ultimate fulfillment of total salvation. With Christ's resurrection, we have a moment in history that guarantees our full and final healing. Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15 that he is the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. So Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 47 through 49, he says this, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so because of the work of the cross and because of the resurrection of Jesus, all things are being made new by the Spirit of God. There is a new principle at work now since the resurrection in the world through the church of the living God. Death, sorrow, crying, and pain are to be, we're told, done away with in Revelation 21 at the culmination of history. And so the meaning of history, the meaning of the full scope of God's salvation, I think has to be understood in terms of the fall creation, the creation, fall, redemption, restoration paradigm of the Bible, that we as believers, as Christians today, are the new humanity in Jesus Christ. We are the children of the resurrection. What does that mean for medicine? Well, with such an understanding in mind, the early Christian church responded to tragedies like the plagues we've just spoken about with a very interesting example. From the outset, because of the teaching of Scripture, the church saw part of its role as healing and restoration. Let me give you one example here. The Christian response to the plague of Cyprian in AD 250 was a pandemic which was named after the contemporary bishop of Carthage in North Africa, and it spread across the Roman Empire. It lasted for about two decades. Terrible plague. According to Cyprian's description, the symptoms included diarrhea, vomiting, infectious sores in the mouth and eyes, gangrene of the limbs as well, and it was often fatal. People who did survive were very often left crippled, deaf, or blind. And while most people abandoned the sick and fled to Carthage, Cyprian exhorted Christians to stay and care for the victims of the plague, whether they were Christians or pagans. And he urged the Christians to practice the mercy of Christ 
Uh, Dionysius, bishop of Alexandria in Egypt, provides a contemporary account of the plague. This is what he says, and I quote, Most of our brother... By the way, I'm sorry I don't have PowerPoint. I know that that is a very helpful device. Uh, I make the points. The Holy Spirit provides the power. I, I, I grew up Pentecostal, and I've never been able to shake that off. Um, <laughs> Most of our, this is what uh, Dionysius says, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. The heathens behaved in a very opposite, in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their loved ones, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating the unburied corpses as dirt. This is corroborated by Eusebius, the church historian, who gives an account of a plague that broke out in 312 and 313 AD. He says this, Alone in the midst of this terrible calamity, the Christians proved by visible deeds their sympathy and humanity. All day long, some continued without rest to tend the dying and bury them. Others rounded up the huge number reduced to scarecrows all over the city and distributed loaves to them all. So their praises were sung on every side, and all men glorified the God of the Christians and confessed that they alone were pious and truly religious, did not their actions speak for themselves, end quote. So the Christian response to these pandemics and plagues in the third century wasn't ad hoc either, because for 200 years, the church had organized institutionalized ministry to the poor, the destitute, and the sick. In fact, ambulatory care was seen as part of the diaconal ministry of the church. When the plague struck in uh, 250 AD, Christians were not only willing to care for the sick, they'd already organized and trained people to care for them. The medical historian Roy Porter uh, says this then concerning the church. He says, Jewish traditions of help and hospitality were extended, and Christ's instruction to his disciples to care for the sick and needy assumed institutional form through the appointment of deacons charged with distributing alms. By 250 AD, the church in Rome had developed an elaborate charitable outreach with wealthy converts providing food and shelter for the poor. Leontius, bishop of Antioch, from 344 to 358 AD, set up hostels in his see. Around 360 AD, Bishop Eustasius of uh, Sebastia built a poorhouse, and St. Basil erected outside the walls of Caesarea almost a new city for the sick, poor, and leprous. I mean, I could multiply these uh, illustrations because... um, one of my colleagues at the Ezra Institute and at Westminster is a, is a patristic scholar, and uh, he gave me uh, a wadful of uh, illustrations of this from the early church. I can just give you a, a couple more. Um, emergency care and uh, hospitality led on to rudimentary efforts at treatments as well. 
A hospital was founded by Fabiola in 399. She was a wealthy Christian convert who dedicated herself to furthering health amongst the sick. This is what St. Jerome said about her. She personally tended the unhappy and impoverished victims of hunger and disease. I have often seen her washing wounds which others, even men, could hardly bear to look at. She founded a hospital and gathered there the sufferers from the streets and gave them all the attention of a nurse. How often she carried home on her shoulders the dirty and poor who were plagued with epilepsy. How she washed the pus from the sores which others could not even behold. Now Roy Porter, the uh, medical historian who is no friend of Christianity, I should add, said this. He's forced to admit, he says, Greek and Roman paganism acknowledged no such duties. In fact, uh, Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, says, and I quote, the famous classical physician Galen lived through the first epidemic during the reign of Marcus Aurelius. What did he do? He got out of Rome quickly, retiring to a country estate in Asia Minor until the danger receded. And uh, he notes that this difference in attitudes of Christian and Greek medicine did not go unnoticed. It was even noticed by the apostate emperor, Julian the apostate, who tried to stir up the pagans and the pagan temples to offer the same kind of care that the church was offering. He was unsuccessful. And the reasons for that are found in the differing worldviews and sense of calling that informed the practice of medicine. From the calling perspective, first of all, many people in the ancient world practiced medicine not because of love for people and certainly not for love for Christ. It was because of fame and honor and money. And just as in the same way today, there is fame and honor to be associated with, be, associated with being uh, a particularly gifted or notorious surgeon uh, or physician uh, or brain surgeon. Uh, there was the same kind of association with physicians in the ancient world too. And your income level depended on how successful you were. So you weren't well served in the ancient world by hanging around as a physician during a plague because you were going to be unsuccessful in your treatments. And you didn't want your godlike reputation, which we will deal with tomorrow in the, the philosophy of Greek medicine, to be damaged by such a plague. You, your reputation would only be destroyed. So Greco-Roman doctors were often reluctant to treat severely or chronically ill people. Secondly, in the uh, pagan worldview perspective, they saw sickness as punishment from the gods for impiety. And it was a consequence for them of moral weakness. It wasn't an aspect of a fallen world, don't forget. They didn't, have, they didn't share the biblical worldview. These were temporal punishments from the gods. Sickness threatened the peace and stability of the empire. And it was therefore evidence of a lack of devotion to the gods. If the empire was going to stand, it needed the blessing of the gods. Therefore, sickness, people who were seriously ill, were stigmatized and very often ostracized from society. Because people were wanting favor from the gods. And the sick were being punished. So the church astonished the world with its approach to health care. 
In the 4th century, and some of you who are church historians will know this, uh, we have the rise of monasticism. There were different types of monasticism. Some monks were in the desert, some were, in, were alone in, solitary, uh, in a solitary life. Others, though, were in community, in, in monasteries. And with the rise of monasticism came the rise of various monastic rules and the rise of the infirmary, healthcare, and really uh, the rise of the modern hospital. There's many little-known facts about uh, Christian healthcare in this period. Monasteries had a medical staff, they had administration, they had facilities they had, uh, that provided uh, inpatient and outpatient care. They had doctors, nurses, porters, elders, stewards, caregivers, and so on and so forth. Many doctors renounced their life in the world, went into the monastery to practice medicine. They... Uh, offered various therapies. They offered some primitive surgery. I'm not sure I would have wanted fourth century surgery from a monk, but nonetheless, they did their best. They uh, prescribed pharmaceuticals. And they really invented the practice of nursing. Nursing, uh, as uh, we came to understand it uh, in the Western world, was developed by the monasteries. Nurses were charged with feeding and bathing and providing palliative care to their patients. Monastic health care also integrated spiritual care with medical care. So there was what we might call a holistic approach to medicine, not holistic in the sense of the revival of paganism that we're seeing in our time and occultism in medicine, but Christian spiritual care. Prayer, anointing with oil and so forth. Uh, In fact, uh, the bishop of Caesarea Uh, argues, he says, that the medical art was given to us by God to relieve the sick. And he believed this should be put to a a proper use, but he says, let's not confuse uh, doctors with God, who is ultimately the healer. Let's remember that healing and wholeness is something that God is doing in our lives and is multifaceted. It's not just, as we heard yesterday, biology. It's not just biological wellness. So there was prayer, there was exorcism, there was counseling. There was all manner of different types of care that was involved in the medical treatment of the Christian world. Basil says, we should neither repudiate this art of medicine altogether, nor does it behoove us to repose all our confidence in it. But just as in practicing the art of agriculture, we pray God for the fruit... And just as we entrust the helm to the pilot in the art of navigation, we implore God that we may end our voyage unharmed by the perils of the sea. So also, when reason allows, we call in the doctor, but we do not leave off hoping in God. So they had a realistic understanding of the potentiality of medicine. It cannot substitute for the great physician, for God himself who gives aid and gives skill even to the doctor. The repertoire of spiritual remedies included all manner of of things, uh, the the sign of the cross, anointing with oil, holy water, laying on of hands. Pretty much everything in the Christian repertoire uh, was involved in the Christian approach to healing. And the possibility of miraculous cures was never ruled out. They prayed over their patients for God's healing touch. Now, as you move on through the 
this period into the 6th century, and I've almost finished my historical summary. I appreciate your patience with this, but I do think it is important because who we are is who we were. If we want to understand our calling, we do need to understand how Christians throughout history have understood their, the calling to the sick. By the 6th century, the church in Jerusalem had a hospital with 200 beds. St. Samson's in Constantinople was even bigger. Their minor surgical operations were performed. They even had a wing for eye disorders, a whole wing of the hospital. By 650 AD, in Constantinople, there was a hierarchy of physicians, a home for the elderly, a leper house, and teaching facilities. And as I say, this medical historian who is not a Christian His summary is significant. Roy Porter, he says, Christianity planted the hospital. The well-endowed establishments of the Levant and the scattered houses of the West shared a common religious ethos of charity. Porter goes on to say this, without the Christian virtue of charity, would such hospitals have existed at all? So I think we can be pretty proud as Christians uh, of our legacy through the early church and on through the medieval period in healthcare. It does go on through the Middle Ages right on into the modern world. Contrary to myth, the church did not uh, oppose medical research. It did not oppose dissection as some Uh, twisted accounts of the church's relationship to science and medicine is related, although it did say that the body had to be that of the criminal, and it did need to be buried in a Christian way afterwards. So there were certain restrictions. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, the church was not opposed to medical research. Many of the medical students at the universities in northern Europe throughout the Middle Ages joined holy orders to practice medicine. The rule of St. Benedict stated, the care of the sick, and I'm quoting, is to be placed above and before every other duty, as if indeed Christ were being directly served by waiting on them. So the medieval hospital was the work of the Christian period. In England, by 1400, there were 500 hospitals, including St. Bartholomew's, which dates from 1123. And as I said yesterday, friends, all of this was funded by the Christian church through the tithe. All of it. There was no state welfare. This was all provided by and through the church. So, why did the church do all of this? We've seen the plan of salvation in history. We've seen how the early church responded Can we understand a little more of why they did this? Well, if the direction of history is healing and salvation, and if we are a kingdom of priests under the great high priest, if we are physicians under the great physician, then we are called to minister God's healing to the world, body and soul, as we were reminded yesterday. In the English language, the word health comes from the old English root hal, which means whole. The words holiness, wholeness, health, and healing all have a common root. 
The whole person is the person who we say is, who is working together in harmony. Mind, body, soul, emotions are in harmony. The ideal of wholeness, as it were. Health, actually, then, is an aspect of salvation. Because of the plan of salvation, the direction of history, Christ's ministry of the kingdom in history, we see that health is an aspect of God's salvation. The Latin word, we see this in the Latin word salve, from which we derive our English word salvation. Salvation. It has as its root word health. Because salvation is total health of body and soul, which culminates in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul says this in Philippians 3.21, Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So remember that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a physical resurrection. This is very, very important in the Christian worldview. The Greeks couldn't understand this. When Paul goes to the Areopagus to speak to the Athenian philosophers, they start mocking when he talks about the resurrection of the body because for the Greeks who had a dualistic, uh, largely platonic vision of the world, the body was inferior, the material realm is inferior, the spiritual is superior at best. Uh, At worst, there is a a greater dichotomy, but the, the ascent of the soul from the body is the goal. So why on earth would God, whoever this God is that Paul is proclaiming, raise a corpse from the dead? What's the point of that? You see, the resurrection of Jesus is a physical, corporeal resurrection. They could touch the holes in his hands and in his feet and put their fingers into his side. He ate breakfast with them to prove he was truly a man. And today Jesus is a man in heaven. Now, because of the influence of Greek philosophy in in the Christian worldview and way of thinking, we even tend to think of heaven as a place of disembodied souls. But the resurrected state is the new heavens and the new earth in which we have a corporeal, physical, real existence. Jesus had a transformed body, yes, a glorified body, freed from all corruption, of the Adamic aspect to our nature. So the principle of health, when we are regenerated in Jesus Christ, a new principle is at work within us, a principle of wholeness, of health and holiness in every aspect of our lives. That's not to say we live in perfect health. We don't, of body. But it's an important aspect of our lives because we are now, Paul says, a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. This has some significant implications for care for the body. Paul says physical exercise is of some value. Now, I play soccer uh, once a week on a Friday night. More recently, I've returned to the gym as I approach 40, to, uh, and I feel better for it. Right? You exercise your body a bit, and uh, I'm weighing in about, doctors can do their analysis on me now, but I'm weighing in at about 165, and uh, I can bench press 210 now. Uh, I'm quite pleased with that, I must say. 
training with my associate pastor who weighs 185, and he's just about staying with me, so I'm quite happy about that. Uh, We have then, in this principle of health and wholeness of salvation, a duty as Christians to be concerned for our physical well-being, but the physical well-being of others as a priestly calling and ministry, as we serve as a kingdom of priests in the reconciliation of all things to God. It's no surprise then that the doctor was seen in the church as having a priestly role and vocation in care for the sick. Very quickly in these last five minutes, the biblical view of medical care actually is Levitical in origin. It goes back to the Levites. And it continues in the New Testament period. We have laws in Scripture and the Jewish application of Levitical laws which concern things like social gatherings, personal hygiene, circumcision. We understand some of the health benefits of that now. Unclean animals sexual relations, all of which furthered public health. And many of these laws we now know would have, did further the public health of the Hebrews. In fact, if these laws had been followed in a rudimentary way in much of the medieval period and the ancient period, many communities would have been spared the plague. Many communities would have not been sick if they had actually obeyed biblical law with respect to public health. It's interesting to note, for example, that wells could not be dug near waste or burial grounds. Water was to be boiled before drinking. Waste had to be burned outside the camp. There were all kinds of, which we now recognize the, with our understanding of the sciences, recognize the health benefits, which we didn't understand before. The wisdom of God's law is seen in many of these things. If, for example, Greek medicine had followed what Scripture teaches, that the life is in the blood, its blood is its life, maybe we wouldn't have practiced bloodletting for the centuries that we did. In one of the parables of Jesus, the Good Samaritan, wine is used as a disinfectant. Oil is massaged into the body to ease pain. Luke the evangelist is a doctor, he's a physician. St. Paul writes Timothy a prescription. What does he do? He says, take some wine for your troubled stomach and other ailments. Now, I find this particularly interesting because we know today that wine has many health benefits when taken in moderation. Now, I don't know if you're a teetotaler, that's fine. This is not what I'm talking about now. Whatever your conscience is with respect to alcohol is not the issue. But red wine helps the stomach convert potentially harmful chemicals into less dangerous molecules before they're circulated around the body. Again, based on my library card, apparently the polyphenols in red wine trigger the release of nitric oxide, which relaxes the stomach wall and helps optimize digestion. My mum has a slight tremor of the hand. She's not Parkinson's, it's, but, she's, uh, but she has a slight... So when she lifts a glass, she's got a slight tremor. The doctor said to her, you need to drink wine, red wine. Settle your nerves. It aids sleep. And it can reduce the risk, according to a number of, uh, uh, of studies now, very good studies, I believe, uh, it reduces the risk of heart disease, especially in men, by something up to 40%. So we have an interesting prescription there. Uh, from uh, Paul to Timothy. 
In fact, even during, Pro- I'm digressing now, but even in the Prohibition era here in North America, you could, um, uh, doctors could prescribe alcohol for medicinal purposes. So at Christmas, suddenly everybody was sick. And uh, doctors were writing uh, prescriptions hand over fist for uh, various uh, alcoholic products. Um, but James prescribes prayer and oil for the sick as well, because the body belongs to God, and the body, Paul says, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the vision, our understanding of the human body as God's temple, led to a very dim view of suicide, which had been glorified in parts of the ancient world. The body is God's temple. And Paul says we should therefore glorify God with our bodies. So we have this remarkable overlap between the practice of medicine and the work of the pastor, which is why it's good that I'm here with you this few, these few days. In fact, there was even an identity in their work because both were seen as aspects of the work of salvation. Richard Baxter, the Puritan pastor in the 17th century, went to his town to, to I think it was Leominster, I think, to, to be a, a, a pastor. And there was no physician in the town. He was a bright man. So he taught himself medicine and became the doctor as well. Until there was a professional physician who could be found and tempted to come to the town. Medicine was seen by Christians from the early centuries as a holy and priestly calling. So much so that by the 5th century, many orders required doctors to be celibates. I expect you're glad we don't still practice that one. (laughs) And you look at some of the relationship between the practice of the pastor and the doctor. What about privileged communication? What about confession, really? Because they mirror one another. When you go to a pastor to confess sin... We're confessing to God through his servants and we're seeking spiritual health and wholeness. And over my years as a pastor in in ministry, I've had many people come to me and confess all manner of sins. And now I'm not shockable. In the early days I was and it's hard to hide the shock. And some of you doctors have talked to me about the difficulty of not being judgmental when you hear such confessions. But when a person comes to a pastor, they're seeking a route to healing and health and restoration spiritually. When people go to the doctor, they are confessing to physical infirmities. And a similar kind of self-humbling is required that most of us don't particularly like in submitting ourselves to physical examination for the purpose of healing and health. Spiritual examination with the pastor physical examination with the doctor in submission and in the desire to find healing and restoration. Both are confession and both are privileged confidential communication that are closed to others because they are really a religious act. It's a religious act. Doctors today, as the church has retreated from its task of ministering the gospel that deals with sin, often find their surgery is more like a confessional. All manners of con- manner of confessions are made to you as doctors, less so as dentists, because their hands being in your mouth, you can't talk so well, but maybe before the implements come out. The family doctor was seen as a family friend who brings a child into the world and cares for the well-being and wholeness of that child throughout their life. That was the Christian vision of medicine. Just as the pastor cared for the spiritual well-being of the person. So the doctor and the physician 
have a priestly calling as an aspect of God's salvific purpose in history. The very term doctor that we use today from the Latin means to teach. And from the early church, the doctor was one who taught Christian doctrine. A doctor was a teacher of Christian doctrine, and so the great teachers of the church were called doctors. The origin of the university doctorate is there, the Christian teaching degree. And the earlier term for medical practitioners, which we still use, I know, professionally, was physician, from the Greek concept of a natural philosopher, a physicist. In the Christian world, then, we took the physician, and then we took the Christian term for a teacher of salvation and health, and we applied it to the physician. A much more personal, not an impersonal term, a personal term, a doctor, a teacher of health. I think that is highly significant. The Christian world was one which made the physician a doctor to care and treat as an aspect of God's salvation in history. I've gone on five minutes too long, but there is still a few minutes left for questions. So I will try and take any questions that you may have for the next few moments. I think this reads, uh, if moral conviction about healing in early history... What lasting uh, motive will sustain healing in our invariably humanistic society? Well, I think think I've sought to answer that question by saying that um, if we're going to sustain a real vision of uh, uh, a godly vision of medicine and healing in our society, we have to return to a Christian worldview. I'm going to talk about this quite a bit more tomorrow about the philosophy that presently informs the practice of medicine. But you see that uh, increasingly in our society, the idea of um, caring for the patient's well-being from from the womb to the tomb is being lost. Uh, We have uh, 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 medical intellectuals arguing for after-birth abortion. Uh, We've got uh, the drive towards physician-assisted suicide, euthanasia. Of course, we have the issue of abortion. Uh, and uh, we've got, um, in a sense, because we are not being guided by any ultimate moral standards in medicine, if we can, we will. And this seems to be the only uh, guiding principle today, and we are, we are steadily losing our uh, moorings in what the purpose of medicine actually is. Uh, so the only thing I think that will sustain responsible medicine going forward into the future, especially with all the difficult bioethical issues that are coming our way, is a robust Christian vision of medical care. And I'm going to talk a lot about more, more about that tomorrow. How would you prioritize medicine and prayer and faith in the healing process? That's a really good question. I would say the doctor and the pastor need to work together more. I think that doctors should uh, d- develop um, self-conscious relationship with local pastors. They should intentionally develop relationships with local pastors so that uh, it's not one or the other, it's both together. Uh, you know, often even in our churches, we neglect the calling of the elders of the church. The, the instruction of James is actually really quite specific. 
uh, Westminster, we do that. When somebody is sick, I gather the elders together and we get the oil and we anoint them with oil and we pray. And I think that we need to reconnect. We need to, de- we need to repersonalize medicine more again uh, to, and build relationships with uh, pastors in the churches. Now, of course, if you, I'm not saying that you can't pray for healing as a doctor. Where you can get away with it uh, and you don't think you're going to ostracize your patient, I think you should. And one of the real blessings to me, I almost never go to the doctor, I must confess, but uh, uh, if I'm close to death, it's my, my age group, right, and especially my gender, uh, we don't always find it. But I have a very, very good doctor, a man who's a very dear friend of mine, Dr. Ken Gamble in Toronto. Some of you may know him. Um, he was one of my board members when I was in RZIM. One of the blessings of going to him is, is that um, usually I'm a terrible self-diagnoser. And um, so uh, recently I had a, a, couple, a couple of styes, one on this side, one on that side, and they both became small uh, little, I forget what they call them now, shazalia or something. Uh, little, what are they called? Thank you for the proper pronunciation. Yeah, little lumps there. And I thought there's probably nothing he can do about it, uh, but I thought I'd better go anyway just in case it changes my vision or something. Uh, so, uh, so I went and he said, oh yeah, the body will probably push them out. The intellectuals say the ointments don't work. I said, okay. So he just prayed for me. And uh, I have to say that the uh, uh, um, prayer uh, is, is a tremendous blessing to me when I go to my doctor. That Sometimes we just sit down and talk for five minutes and have a word of prayer together. You know, um, Even if he can't prescribe me or doesn't think there's much value in a prescription of something chemical. So I would say that um, uh, prayer in our personal lives as doctors and physicians is important, that you are praying about how you treat your patients. You're praying over their cases. I think that's a good discipline. I have to pray over the people that I'm meeting with. Why shouldn't you pray over yours? Where you can pray with them, you should pray with them. And where you can build relationships with pastors in the community where you work, I think you should. Uh, so that, maybe that's enough there. Um, uh, Christians were more prone to clinical depression and other mental illnesses than non-believers. Is there any biblical reference to this, and what are your thoughts on this observation? I'm afraid I can't speak to that, uh, that question. Dr. Grant Moulin, um, Canadian Christian physician, uh, I can't speak to that issue. I, I really don't know. What I would say is that I'll touch on this tomorrow. Psychiatry is the softest science in the medical profession. And uh, I have grave difficulties with some of the proliferating diagnoses of various alleged mental disorders that are... If we see man as a biochemical machine uh, and not holistically as the Bible requires, we will prescribe a chemical solution to every problem. I think there are 10 million children on Ritalin in the United States today. I think this is just absurd. It's a tragedy. Uh, but uh, as, as, as with regards to Christians suffering from depression, I, I just can't speak to that. I don't know, is my response. Uh, what is the role of doctors to defend and protect the fetus? Well, the first one that a doctor reminded me of recently is to not do abortions, uh, to refuse to do them and to resist all efforts to uh, require doctors to perform these kind of services. Uh, uh, also, I think we need to be bold in advising. I'm sure you as doctors have women who come to you and are, are pregnant and aren't sure what to do. 
And I think ref referrals to Christian pregnancy crisis clinics is very important. And I think that you counselling uh, as far as you are allowed or can uh, is very, very important, even if it means a risk to you. You know, I, I speak to lawyers a lot as well. And um, uh, one of the things I've said to lawyers is you're going to have to start taking some risks in our society if we're going to see uh, uh, a truly Christian vision of law and medicine and, and not see our social order collapse around us. And I think the same is true for doctors. You're going to have to start taking some risks in what you say to patients. Uh, maybe that's unfair to say, but uh, I don't think it is. I think all Christians have to face risks in our society. And uh, I think that um, if we're going to be faithful to Christ, Christ is our first allegiance. Not some medical board, not Caesar, not the state. Christ is our number one allegiance. And I think that, first of all, we resist that motive. I think uh, I was told recently by uh, a friend, that uh, a doctor, who said that uh, his whole hospital in Oakville resisted. No abortions were done there because the doctors said together, we're not doing it. So I think you, as, as, as medical practitioners, have more uh, influence than you realize. You're the doctors. Why should you do what politicians are ordering you to do? I think we need to ask ourselves those questions. Uh, where can we mo read more about Christian communities and medical outreach in the first centuries? Um, I promised you I'd provide some kind of... I will write some of those uh, uh, books down. There is tons on this. Uh, some of it is not in print. Uh, you have to dig around to some of the source material, and that's why I have colleagues who do that uh, with me, for me sometimes. Um, but uh, uh, there are lots of books that deal with this, and I would, would really encourage you to do that, because I think it's inspiring. I think we need to be inspired by Christian models of medicine in the past. Why the emphasis on 20 million bubonic deaths in three years, when today there are 100 million deaths and 200 million deeply damaged by abortion? The pathogen is the parents. Yeah, well, that's a very good point. I'm not going to argue with that. Um, my illustration about bubonic plague was just to show that we are humbled by disease. Uh, that there are things that, uh, with all our medical self-confidence, uh, we can't fix. I'm going to talk a little bit tomorrow about the fact that the focus of medicine should be care rather than cure. Our powers to cure are very limited. What we're trying to do is care for people. If we can cure them, of course we, we will, we will try. But the goal of medicine is, is care. And uh, that's our, our priority. We are humbled by disease, and it does remind us that the world is broken and it needs salvation in Jesus Christ. Uh, I think that what is happening with abortion is... I find it quite difficult to talk about because I find it so uh, painful to contemplate the articles that I read, and I, when I read what's going on, it, uh, it, it, I think a sensitive Christian is broken down by this issue, by the millions of murders that are taking place every year of the unborn. This is, a, this is a pogrom for which we're under the judgment of God. There's no question about that in my mind, and we need to do everything we can. We heard about that, that the way of the cross is doing something, and uh, you as doctors are on the front line of that. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. 
Thank you.